for joining us for Woke Moments, a conversation on issues and hot topics impacting young generations. My name is Janet Kelly, and I am the Executive Director of Sanctuary of Hope, as well as your host. So now let's jump into a moment of awakening. Woke Moments. Thank everyone for joining us for part two of our Woke Moments podcast on the foster care system. Um, If you had an opportunity to look at part one, you would have learned so much from our young um, men who were siblings who shared about their foster care uh, experience as well as what would have been very helpful to them um, if the uh, foster care system was transformed and more supportive to their needs. But we're today, we're just really having a dialogue with our foster care advocates um, around the foster care system and its transformation and how it can be um, a bit more supportive to families as well as youth who are in the system. And this is just going to be an open dialogue and conversation because one, it's this conversation is not meant to really point fingers and and focus so much on what's wrong with it than it is to what can we do or how can we anchor ourselves to um, ensure that the system in itself is very supportive to families and youth. And so today we have guests who are joining us who are foster care advocates within the community. And I am going to invite them to do a brief one minute introduction of themselves before we kind of get into this, the conversation and the topic of foster care transformation. And first we're going to start with Ms. Deborah Thomas. Oh, hi everyone. I just wanna let you know that I worked with Department of Children's Services for 37 years and retired about four years ago. So I saw almost four decades of how DCFS can transform. And it it, it does, it transforms. (laughs) It would transform every time we got a new director. (laughs) So so you, you can say that in working for DCFS, that the staff were very, we had to be very fluid and constantly deal with, there's changes in how society is, there's changes in how we're providing services. So, Mm -hmm. um, and we went through periods of time where I thought the agency was very focused on the African-American community and then other times when they were not as focused on the African-American community. But it was always something that for me was important. Great. And next, Michael. Like my sister, uh, big sister, Deborah, 25 plus year relationship with the department. And just, you know, although I, I grew as a professional, I grew as an individual as well. Uh, we, when I came in, family preservation was really um, the thing. I started under the Black Family Investment Project, and then I transitioned to um, 
the medical piece where we were dealing with children with, with foster children with various medical issues. And then, you know, eventually it was an emphasis on adoption. And then we got a four E waiver. And then we had, uh, for our transition, we had a, a, our directors from Georgia uh, who I really had a lot of uh, faith in who would transform the system after the uh, Board of Supervisors, um, you know, came down with an edict uh, um, from that point. But right now I do consulting. I am still um, concerned about um, the direction. You know, it takes time for a ship to move around and pivot. But at this point, I'm still in the fight. I still have gasoline in the tank to, to do what I need to do in terms of advocate for children, especially those most vulnerable. So I thank you for the opportunity, sis, and I hope, hope we can contribute to the dialogue. Oh, thank you. All right, and Otho Day. Uh, my name is Otho Day. I too am a retired uh, uh, staff of DCFS. Uh, I managed, uh, I was a social worker, supervisor, and I worked my way up to management. But eventually I ended up uh, directing the independent living program, the transitional housing program, and the program that uh, Mike just mentioned was the Family Preservation Program. And my last assignment was I. Uh, but uh, created, co-created, and facilitated the the uh, program called the VIP, the Volunteer Intern Program, where we brought in, we started bringing in former foster youth and current foster youth to work for the county, where I trained them to work for the county. Uh, so it's kind of so what, one of my legacies of creating that program. Uh, I've seen changes too, uh, and we need changes because the system has changed, the world's changed, laws change, we have to keep up with those. However, we also need people, staff, who are committed to those changes. And if they're still stuck in the old way, uh, they won't catch up with the new way. And that has happened throughout the department. And from my understanding, it's probably continuing. And I want this conversation to truly be on what I call the three T's. I want us to be truthful, trusting, and transparent. So in our dialogue today, that's what you're going to get from me. Uh, and if uh, I think that's what is it, uh, someone, one move is uh, said, you can't handle the truth. Uh, if you can't handle it, I say mute yourself or mute me now, okay? And, and Otho, I really think we're going to be full trusting and transparent in this dialogue. And I think that most, I mean, our audience are probably not fully aware of really kind of what the foster care system is. Because in a sense, if you talk to people on the ground level, just like me, I'm a parent, I'm a mother of two kids and a mother of two adult kids. So we have, we have this perception that um, the foster care system in itself and those who are often associated with it, and it was the same thing that I often use too that was mentioned in an imprint article today is you know, often seen as this superpower, right? And it's something that majority of us, especially those of us who, who are parenting, have this fear of the system, right? Because it's, it's so um, ambiguous and, and our experiences, whether good or, some, good or bad, often it's, it's balanced, right? Um, really don't know what to expect as far as a relationship with, with the system. So can you, or, or Deborah or Mike, either one of you kind of weigh in on 
what foster care is a system. What is the intent of the foster care system? <laughs> uh, the, the foster care intent is to temporarily or permanently make sure a child is secure and safe and has an has a appropriate life. If there's any type of abuse in the home, they to protect that child and put that child into a safe environment. And if that's then after a period of time, over a period of time rather, work with that family to get that child back into their primary home. And when they cannot get that child back into their home, they should be working towards getting that child into a permanent placement home. And again, uh, to, be, to be transparent and direct, that is one of the failures of the department, and especially when it's affected to black kids. Because black kids in LA County stays in the system longer than any other child, any other race of kids in the system. Interesting. So Deborah and Mike, can you share just about that piece that, that Otho just mentioned about the disproportionality? Because if we're talking about being truthful and being transparent, if the goal is um, returning back to family or the other goal, right? If the return back to family is not um, practical, then what should we be doing as far as a transformational aspect for those who are disproportionately impacted when we're talking about black children? Well, I can say that I started with the department in 1979. So that really dates me. And so we've come a long way. Back when I started in 79, they viewed children age five or six as, I work in adoptions, as unadoptable and, oh, we can't do anything for them. I mean, they had, it was just very, very antiquated ideas. And what a group of us did was work to transform that to beginning of a system that looks like what it is today. What we have in DCFS is people would look at African-American children and decide just based on you know, just like they're talking about the caste system now, they would just view us in a way that we were not enough. That we, that, we, that they didn't have to find a permanent home for us, that it was just okay for us to be in foster care. You didn't have to look at the, at the family and try to reunify. You didn't have to look at the strengths of families, especially our families, from an African-American uh, perspective. And so our children would just languish because we didn't have the people and we didn't have a structure that was strength-based for viewing African-Americans. And that was why our children were disproportionately in foster care. But also when it came to detentions, there were people that would go into the homes and look at our families and they would use a rating system that always would say, our families just were not enough. Our families didn't have the skills. 
and that and and so it was it was a biased system for us and although michael and i we've always been a part of programs in dcfs that tried to debunk that but you know we were always a part of a very small percentage in dcfs but every day we went into work and we fought to have our voices heard and to try to and try to promote no we're beautiful <laughs> let's let's look at all of our scripts my family is beautiful your family's beautiful let's look at us from a strength based perspective and i know michael can uh can continue to speak on that because he was in the Black Family Investment Project. Mike? Thank, thank you, Sister Deborah. Well, before I respond to that, on the other end uh, of it was the foster care and recruitment, which um, really created a, a quandary for, for a lot of the, you know, the African-American families that really wanted to be foster parents. Um, and the biggest stumbling block was anything related to a criminal history. You know, we have to have a criminal check, criminal background check. And just, I have to admit that, that although I felt that I was an independent operator in terms of really putting best practice forward for black families, but, but indirectly I was contributing to some of that as well, but not conscious of it. I'm conscious of it now, but when you first start off, you're not. But the fact is, is that, uh, for example, you could have a uh, um, um, a couple of uh, the 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 the, um, the wife may not have a criminal record, but the husband may have something thirty years ago in a different state um, under a law that has since been uh, um, amended or thrown out, and you know he could have had an expungement in another state, but you know through our system. You know, once they see it, they're sitting there solving the discussion. They try to give an exemption, but but it then you know they ask you to you know um, you know con you know have three or four individuals speak to your your character and uh, how long have you been employed, so on and so forth. So you pretty much put on the cross, if you want to call it that, just to be in a position to um, you know have a foster child looks like you. Secondly, um, the MEPA Act created some problems for us too in terms of eliminate you know, race-based placements. But uh, right now, the Association of Black Social Workers, we're in partnership with um, Karen Bass to kind of change that law and, and, and kind of modify that law to reflect what's going on, that, on today. Um, the reality is that um, a lot of times, you know, it's, it's an arbitrary system where workers will just go out, similar to what Sister... Um, Deborah said, and just, you know, make an arbitrary system. Um, and in our department, we have a program called P3. Um, you know, have like, you know, ex CSWs that want to come back and try to do a forensic look at, you know, uh, relatives or friends or family that could have taken the child. Well, it's kind of, it's not a moot point, but the child may be 15, 16, 17 years old. It's good to connect them, but, but nobody ever has an answer when they're younger. Or, 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 or they even infants, it's just, you know, and, and the fact that workers are bogged down with cases, they don't, that that quality touch is not there. And I'm reminded, as soon as I started, I, I, you know, I had a, a, a supervisor tell me that, you know, 
uh, this is case management. You do social work on your own time. And I, I mean, I'm like, and so I, I get what she meant. And, and you get programmed. If you're not an independent thinker, you will get up in management and, and that's great and that's good. But you'll forget uh, through that space and time, you know, you'll look at numbers and, and, and charts and stuff, but you forget the fact that the human touch to that. And, and shout out to our supervisors. They're, they're, they're my heroes because they catch it from above and below. So I just wanted to share my piece about that, but the struggle continues. I was just going to add that okay. he, okay. that Michael was referring to MEPA, which is the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act. And he might, he might want to say a little bit about what that means, because it sort of leaves people hanging when we use our, our social work acronym. Right, right. No, no, no. I, I defer. Sister Thomas, be my guess. You have the floor. <laughs> no. Well, the, the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, with that, it sort of, um, it sort of watered down our efforts to be able to, we, were, we wanted to place African-American children with African-American families. And with the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, what it did was to sort of tied African-American social workers' hands and trying to, when we would match children with families, they said, oh, children are lingering in foster care when you only want to place them with someone that looks like them, that's the same race, and on and on. And so the real exceptions to that were based on language. Mm. And so what happened was this long era of the decision really was, we're going to bring down the disproportionality of African-American kids by placing them transracially. And as that particular act evolved, it really went into it really went into a whole bias toward placement of African-American kids where we weren't supposed to consider a kid's culture. And it was just really hard for staff, especially if you were African-American, to, to know that you're, you're sitting there trying to talk to children and tell them that another race family, this is going to be okay for you. They're going to understand you. And in actuality, those families really didn't understand them. And we went, and it was, it was very, we went through a very difficult time in um, trying to get our whole system to understand how hard that was for our community and our children. So Otho, given what um, Ms. Thomas has shared, what do you think are the drivers of that disconnection between system, community, staff, and then at the end of the day, our young people? What, what is that driver? Uh, well, I don't want to be, well, no, I'm going to be transparent. Matt, you asked me a question. I would say, I think there's a whole lot of systemic racism, personal racism, uh, because you can have a person who can stroke 
a family, or you can have a person who can beat down the family with a pen. So in terms of how things are written up or seen, uh, where blacks are looked on as uh, second or third class citizens. So the disconnect is with people who are not culture sensitive with the needs of black kids. Uh, as a supervisor, I remember reading a, uh, reading a report from a white worker, a female worker, social worker, who said that the home was filthy. And I, I said, describe filthy. You just can't put that in the court report, describe filthy. Her filthy was the dishes was a lot of dishes in the sink, things were on the table, and the beds were unmade. That was just, this, that was her thing. But see, I, I don't know if I washed my dishes that night before. I couldn't even remember. So I said, no, that's not good enough. You can't put filthy, take that word out. But those social, those supervisors who do not catch that, or put up, make a make a worker describe something in detail, it can go into a certain direction and destroy a family. So I think this destruction of a family is also probably uh, the county or DCFS is supposed to put families back together. The writing also can destroy a family. Mm-hmm. So and I think I, that we the, need to be more direct with people and not, right. and not play games with them. Right. I think, you know, one of the one of the things that kind of is very clear is that there's a disconnect in relationships and what that relationship should look like from a system level. Again, back to the community, the staff and all of that. So what do you think would be transformative in terms of DCFS or the child welfare system relationship? around supporting families and supporting um, young people? I'm going to speak on Black families because that's what my, my interest is now. Where I'm concerned about a lot okay. of people, however, but the disproportionality of Blacks in L.A. County, uh, the number of Black children in L.A. County between 7 and 8% in LA as a totality for everybody, all, all the black kids in L.A. County. So if there are 10 million people in L.A. County, uh, we are talking about a very low number mm-hmm. for kids. However, mm-hmm. black children, uh, black families represent almost 30% of DCFS population. So it goes back to looking at numbers. And the disproportionate has to be looked at. Mike was a part of a program, the Black Investment, Black Project. So put emphasis on where the issue is, where, where, where there's a crisis going on. And don't lump it in and say people of color. Because when you start talking about people of color, you dilute the black. And then in time, you pay people of color and black people involved, they're going to get the lower end of it when it should be focused on us. So a primary focus should go back to the Black Family Investment Project, create that, strong Black social workers who are committed, not just because you're Black either. They don't make you, you, know, they don't make you right either now for the, for the program. But you have to be committed and strong, have a strong base of community to work with their population and their family and not just put anybody in there. Um, I, I wanted, I'll join in on that, 
And I was looking at, uh, I had looked at when they're talking about making changes to children's services and they have a project called Invest LA and one of their, one of their pillars was workforce excellence. The, when we talked about MEPA, we also have to talk about something else that happened during my career, which was Proposition 209, that basically said we couldn't consider race when we were hiring people. And what that did was for, especially for government organizations, it said we could not consider the race of an applicant to the job. And so over time, we saw less and less social workers that were African-American coming to the department. You saw also the impact on education because with the workforce, it says they wanted excellence in education. So there were less African-American students going to college to get degrees so that they could come to work in social work. When you have those two factors and you have a system that ends up as Otho says with 30% of the children that are African-American in the foster care system, there's something wrong with that picture. You need to be able to say, they, you know, just like NEPA is the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act mm -hmm. was one of those things that said, we don't see color. This one, we needed to turn it around to say, we need to see color. We need to see culture. We need to see and understand how important community is mm -hmm. in the service of our children and our families and people that are going to be involved in returning children to their family of origin. And if they cannot return them to the family of origin, then find a placement that is gonna be culturally supportive, a place where children feel, will be able to feel like they belong, that people will accept them for who they are. And, you know, move away from this whole idea that we have to have culture fit, like it's a melting pot, but really we have to have culture as a buffet where everyone's, um, where our differences are viewed as beautiful. Mm -hmm. So how, so tell me this then, Otho and Deborah, how should we, address or how can we transform an anti-Black culture within a system? To, if, if we're focusing on disproportionality and, and, and Black people who are most impacted by the system, mainly with systemic racism being a driver, what should we be doing right now to really start dismantling, you know, anti-blackness within within the the child welfare culture. Otho, pushing, and then Mike. We should be pushing legislation. Uh, first of all, once we get it on paper and law, 
just as the Native Americans did, uh, but they have ICWA, which is the Indian Child Welfare Act. When DCFS removes a person who has Native, Native American ties, uh, they must contact that tribe and say, what should we do with this, this, this young person? If they say we with us, that tribe is in Keyork, Montana. We have to take mm -hmm. that tribe to Keyork, the country, the people. Now, my thing, this is my own personal thing, who was established by the gift of white people knowing how they feel sad based on the Native American race. So they came along to try to preserve their culture. Well, hell, our culture has been broke down too. And our race has been broken down and continues to be broken down. Well, you know, you can't even get a past person who was in, at 1600 uh, Street in D.C. Uh, to even say that Black Lives Matter. So we have to get people to have an understanding, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. We have to get people to be aware. And, and, and training is one thing, but you can, you can make laws, but if it's on paper, we have something to push back on. Because just because the law is there, if a person of mind says about change, it's going to be there. No, no, Otho said it right. It just, you know, we can hem and haul and, and, and protest and demonstrate and, you know, go back and forth with rhetorical conversations over tea and crumpets. But unless we get on the ground floor and sponsor some legislation, whether it's an individual or group, but I, I prefer a group because, you know, the more you have, the, the more of a force you can have um, in implementing that, but also understand the nature of politics. Mm -hmm. A lot of, and I'm talking about all of them, black, white, yellow, whatever, in the Senate or in the, in, in the, in the House of Representatives. But anywho, okay. that, that's my point. We, we need to find a way that Karen Bass, who, who's, a, who's been a champion of, of foster children right there, and she's also with the George Floyd Act. I mean, if there's mm -hmm. some things that we can do, and it may take some time. You know, we, we may have to have those that come behind us continue to fight. You see how long that, that um, Charles Rangel's been trying to get the reparations bill in? So it takes some time. We have to stay the course and 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 stay on a course of, of a protracted effort. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just one piece. All the other stuff culminates into us changing the laws and getting those influencers say, you know what? Mm, I, I think you're right. And, and and it supersedes votes and money at that point. It's about the right thing to do. So now I, I want to uh chime in on what they're on what the other two are saying, when Otho mentioned the Indian Child Welfare Act and how comprehensive that was, when we talk about, when we look at reparations and you look at all the other cultures and nationalities that um, when they were put into camps, there were reparations. And we we really we are trying to get a bill to study reparations. This tells you how difficult it is. And mm -hmm. there's a there's an acronym 
BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color. We, we need to join with the Indigenous people mm -hmm. and try to get changes to the child welfare system because we do need something that looks like the Indian Child Welfare Act mm -hmm. where we will really be able to try to reunify with people that understand our culture because there's, there's too much bias. I mean, the, the child welfare system was based on, is, is, you know, after the, after MEPA, it was based on, let's not look, you know, all, we're not gonna look, we're gonna just consider people as, I don't see race, but yes, mm -hmm. you do. You have to see race Telling. when you detain our people more <laughs> and, you, and you set different standards for us. And we're, and there's so many more of us in foster care, you mm -hmm. see race. So let's just turn that around to say, you see it. And we want a law. And, and so you, you, in order for us to make the changes, it can't just be California. It is, as Otho says, something that they need to look to Karen Bass or other, others and say, we need to look at this on a national level to make changes to child welfare. Because for Los Angeles County, we are a place where so many people come to LA County. And, and mm -hmm. if we're going to change our foster care system and we're going to say, okay, we wanna place our children with families that are gonna be culturally sensitive to them, then it has to be a federal law because so many of our children move from California to Nevada, to all these other states, and it, and it's, it would be impossible for us to just look at California, just look at Los Angeles County. This is a much bigger conversation. So let, let me ask the, the hard and controversial question then, if we're talking about truth and transparency and trust, how easy is it going to be to get folks to be in solidarity, in allyship, with a targeted approach towards changing the system to really look at race and its impact in the foster care system? You know, I think that we're in a spot today where people are looking at allyship. People are reading the book Cast. They're reading the book. They're reading a lot of books that deal with our history. There isn't a better time than now because people are forced to have these conversations. And if we're going to do something to move this, we need to move it now rather than a time where this blows over. I mean, I, I attended a conference this week that was put on by this organization called I Can, and it was on grief and trauma for children in Los Angeles County. And the date of the conference was on the 25th, the day that people were dealing with George Floyd. Do you know that 
they did not mention George Floyd. They didn't mention his daughter. <laughs> not at all. That, that was something I said, when the whole country is talking about George Floyd and how he was murdered and how across the United States, the trauma of watching someone die made huge changes. But here in LA County, we have a conference on trauma and grief and they don't mention it. They don't mention, oh, this happened today. <laughs> but believe me, Deborah, you know, under the comments, Deborah brought it up. <laughs> I don't miss them. I don't miss them. Hey, I don't miss a moment to bring up. <laughs> You know, I'm you glad that you did. <laughs> yeah, Sister Deborah, Sister Deborah was was fine at SCIU. She wouldn't let nothing slide, including <laughs> me. And she make a, a ginger correction. She was, you know, it, it just they didn't know what to do with her. And, and that's what we need. I, I, I'm almost there. You know, I I, I I I tend to be more diplomatic, but I'm seeing I'm I'm going on the other side. But you can cut up and still be professional about it. Let me chime in on that. Uh... Your, 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 what we have to how difficult you're going, it's going to be very, very difficult. The numbers I gave you about the 7% to almost 30%, I didn't create those numbers. I was on a Zoom call earlier this week with uh, DCFS. They present those numbers. So they know those numbers. But when I left the department three years ago, those numbers were the same. So if they're not moving on it, pressure needs to go from the, from the Fed, the state, and the county, pressure to put on them because if they know about this, what are they doing? I left the department January 2018, and they was talking about the same thing, numbers, the disproportionality, and nothing has been focused on them. So it sounds like there's people who are in positions just talking. So pressure needs to be put on people to make them make changes because when you know something, you don't want to make change, and you keep doing the same thing, I think Everett Einstein said, that's insanity. So right. we got a lot of ins insanity going on in the county, in the state, in the federal government because of the lack of pressure. So anybody want to join me, call me, 323-309-7643, and we can start talking about putting pressure on people from the county level, the state level, and the federal level. And, and we miss you too, Otho, because you know, you've been a great, um, steward in this work, but I, I think what we, we, I think we need to pull out is even beyond our federal, state, and other partners, who are going to be allies? Who are going to be in solidarity with us in this work? I mean, what, what level of organizing or, or advocacy or awareness do we need to be, need to be in order to kind of really prompt some some major kind of drastic changes. Start with you, Otho, and then we'll go to Deborah and then Mike. Well, in terms of allies, Deborah's already mentioned one I think we should reach out to. But before we do that, we need to group. Blacks need to have their own group and have their own understanding before because you can't go to an ally and be divisive, have some conflict. So first, we need to unite and come up with a solid plan. Then we approach the ally. Okay, Deborah. Um, 
I would say the to make the changes that we need to do, I know that the Association of Black Social Workers in Los Angeles is working hard to do that. I look, I get emails because I'm also involved in the National Association of Social Workers. And I mm -hmm. see that the state of New York has an allyship with the National Association of Social Workers and the Black Association of Social Workers. And basically, we have to join groups with organizations that are throughout the United States and say to these organizations, because the, um, the National Association of Social Workers is now saying that they want to consider the consider the goals that the black social workers have. So that would be a good allyship. We have got to join with groups that have the, that have the same purpose and make sure that those groups bring laws and lobby and we all work together because I know it can happen because those groups are having these discussions. So we just need to kick it up a notch. So, you know, in the first segment, you know, our young people talked about um, separation and how that impacted their life. They also talked about the court system and how that also impacted um, their life. So can you explain to the audience kind of what or how the court plays a role in foster care and how um, the courts need to be transformed to be supportive, especially for young people who that's a part of their kind of engagement of understanding where they're going to be within the system. I think there are four traumas that happen with a child when they first come in contact with DCFS for the first 72 hours. Uh, the first trauma is the trauma that gives there. The bringers to the home, what's going to the home. The second trauma, we place that child into, uh, we, we remove that child from a home. That's the second trauma. The third trauma, we have the potential to place that child into a stranger's home. That's a trauma. The, third, the fourth trauma is court. Court has a way of causing trauma to a child. I've seen a Mike Tyson fight long lasted than a court hearing. <clears throat> and so it goes so fast, they talk around the child, about the child, but very seldom to the child. You got to turn the story, legal jargon to them, back and forth, but you're talking about that person's life. Now, as you know, I, I said earlier, with the first introduction piece, I was a manager of the independent living program. So a lot of my emphasis towards teenagers. And so when you're talking to a teenager, or any, a, a child period about their life, you should mm -hmm. be talking to them and in a language that they can understand. The, mm -hmm. the legal piece it has its place. However, when you're talking about a child's life, that child needs to have an understanding of what they're saying about their life. Talk to them, not about them around them, but talk to them. And I mm -hmm. think that's what's going on. And do you have a, a attorney who comes in, read the court report, 
talk to the kids five minutes and go in and represent like they Perry Mason. And all you young people who are listening, that was an old time TV movie. Okay. Uh, it was attorney to Perry Mason who never lost a case. So mm-hmm. the, the, the system legally needs to change because that's also a trauma when the mm-hmm. court proceedings go so fast mm-hmm. and nothing, the child has nothing to say. Well, not have the ability to talk. Mm-hmm. So um, that I can, I can chime in on aspect. that. I can mm-hmm. chime in on that. I could say that in family law court, children get a longer, there's a longer hearing in family law court than in children's, in children's court for DCFS. Mm. And Otho is correct. This, the, they need to expand the number of judges so and the number of attorneys that represent children so that you can give something that is so important if we when we re, when we decide to remove a child terminate parental rights terminate reunification make a plan where we're separating children from families it, sh- it should be more than five minutes. It should be much, much more than five minutes. And I'm going to let Michael talk because we're almost out of time. Yeah, as many years as I wrote a court report, they should have paid us for being paralegals. But the thing is, you're well versed on the WIC laws and, 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 and everything that comes down from Title 42 of Federal. Here's part of the problem a lot of our families are not even aware of the due process of what, you know, the 72-hour piece that Otho talked about. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they, they don't even have enough time to, to get past the shock of their child leaving. And, 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 as long, and I, I think we can all attest to this. No matter what the treatment is by the parents, kids never stop loving their parents. And we have to keep that in mind. So the parent is already going through it. So she didn't, you know, the, the day to show up, you know, the, the jurisdictional dispositional, you know, she's she not even aware if, if she's getting services for six months. And that that impresses upon the worker and the court if she doesn't care. No, we need to fill in the gaps and have advocates for our parents, court advocates, impartial like the CASAs for the kids. We need a CASA for the parents. Because it, I mean, I can only imagine somebody took my child or Otho or, 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 or whoever else. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is that They'll go through this, and then there's an anger portion. A lot of our parents are even irritated at the fact that the kid was taken in the first place. And then they'll shift the blame sometimes, or they'll look at, I know such and such called in on me, or this, that. And they don't even deal about the fact that the child is gone at that point. And even when they go to court, you know, court decorum and, and all that, they, you know, <laughs> and, and, and the public defender's like this, look, I'm going to get paid either way. You would act right and not, and then they'll they'll go on their own volition to to express to the court what the parent may feel or not feel. And then guess what? After that, the social worker catch all that hip and then gotta try to pull all that together just from the instance of, and I'm glad they instituted the 14th and the fifth, the fifth amendment, 14th amendment process. We have to have a war. I'm glad they implemented that. Cause a lot of times I, I do investigations and and I'm, and, I, and I'm guilty of it. If they didn't want to let you in, okay, I'm going to have to go get the police. But that's coercion. See, there's a lot of stuff we have to undo that we didn't learn in, 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 in college or when we got our degrees 
is a whole different different training involved and then the actual work mm-hmm. and the actual work was taking precedence on well mm, this worker did it well my soup says had nothing to do with policy or, or or anything related to what's best for the child and the family so that 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 right there has gotta we gotta get something for the parents man because so so we can't fault them for being uh poverty stricken we can't fault them because the father left out you know what i mean we can't fault people because they're homeless in downtown, you know, it's just that, and, and, and look at outside looking in, and I'm gonna be honest with you, if at all costs, do not contact DCFS. Get a family member, y'all come together, y'all work it out, whatever you gotta do, because if you, you get that 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 thing in you and get tangled up in it, it's it's, it's probably, you know, and I and I hate to say this, but I, you know, the reality is sometimes it works out, but we got other situations that don't work out that don't make the news. So uh, I yield back. Yeah, but I think, I think you hit something on the head, um, Mike, which is, and, and, and which is what some people experience is as you have with law enforcement, when folks feel a need to, oh, I just want to call the police, knowing that certain groups, especially those who are, are Black, those who are Latino, um, their engagement with law enforcement is definitely not going to be the same as an engagement with someone who is who doesn't look like us, right? The same thing could be said about the foster care system because there are folks out there who know that the foster care system can be a form of 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 shifting power or can be a form of use to destroy a family. And once that family is in, like you said, it's very hard to get out. And so it's even on that front end, what can be done to determine if, you know, as someone's just doing this out of pure ill will, as opposed to you know, a real kind of reality or threat to the family and child. Otho? I just wanna, I just wanna chime in because we're almost, I know we're almost out of time. I want to say, because I always am looking for a day or a time when there are no child deaths. DCFS needs to be called as the safety net for a child. If If in fact, you see a parent that is abusive, if if you're in a relationship and it's domestic violence, you know that it's gonna impact the child. If you have a mother that really doesn't want her child, I'm tired of children getting put in trash cans and dumped different places and killed when no one, and, and family members need to understand this. When your daughter says, I do not want this baby, listen to her. Right. I mean, and so that's real this conversation. Is, this, is, this is where that's this real is conversation. Where, this is where DCFS needs to be called because I'm looking for the day when our kids are not killed and they're not endangered right. like this. This is when you call 
Do not wait until afterwards. Do not wait. Absolutely. Mike and then Otho, and then we'll go into kind of wrapping up. Um, no, I, 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 I just, it's, it's let, let's, if we go back to, to the sole purpose of, of, of social work and the settlement houses and, and foster care and, and whatnot, if we go back to the essential, the essential reason why we do what we do in terms of children, I just, it's just, it, it bewilders me because it's, it's not necessarily the, the public. You know, we we given that has an issue. We our our agency and our systems have given the public uh, our bad rap, and, and I know the same difference between good cops and bad cops. But you you have you the part of it internally is that that you have have uh, 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 a civil service situation where you you'll promote uh, uh, folks that have been in with the department five six seven years to supervisor instead of looking at the season. Uh, work was been there 10, 15 years. So that that right there, because it used to be like that with discretion. Now, you know, and I personally experienced that. Where and then, you know, let's let's talk about we being frank about it. You know, when I first started, we majority African American, we had the Black Employees Association. Now, unfortunately, there, there there's been a shift. And you know, you have have and, and I'm not, I don't it's not about who's better, who's not better. It used to be a situation where we all stuck together when it came to being social worker, now it's a shift. And a lot of times we don't look out for each other, but you have other groups that do and, and perceived to, to, do, to do. So part of it is just changing that. And then a lot of these, these managers who just been in these positions, like they did with LA Unified School District, you gotta cut the fat. You know, you can't get to that point and not know how, how you, you're looking at getting your numbers to keep your boss off your back. But you know, that, you know that's why they implemented the 4 waiver. Because as Deborah and Otho know, every time we detain a child, that's a dollar figure. I don't know mm -hmm. if that was the, the direct causation for, you know, because when I started, it was like 70,000 foster children in foster care, and probably a large majority were African American. So I don't know if it, it, they changed that, but, but the reality is, um, you know, that, that's, that's a concern. And my last point is the whole transition of, of probation. I don't know how that probation is going to implement homes similar to, I don't know how that's going to work. Maybe Deborah or Otho can talk to that, but I don't know how that's going to work. But, but I yield back. Okay. But that, okay, that, that, be... that in itself sounds like it's going to be a whole different conversation when I have to invite you back. Otho? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm, not with, I'm not familiar with probation either, uh, the status <laughs> of what they're doing. But uh, the department uh, needs to uh, not be so knee-jerk on, on decisions. Uh, very, very pro, uh, they're not proactive, they're just reactive. And they put themselves in that position, even with the hiring of staff. You, they put people where they say where the need is. So if a new person comes in straight off the street, straight out of college or wherever, uh, very limited experience, they will put them on the front end of the section going out making assessments. That's right. the error. Someone who has no experience going out there and making assessment on a home, uh, that can create a lot of problems for the department. And it has created a lot of problems for the department. So just the creation and not being such a, a knee jerk uh, of doing things and even training their staff 
on how to communicate again with the older population because you know they don't want you to talk bad to talk hard to the talk to the kids and i, I joke my probation counterparts back in the days where i would talk to them and say the only difference between a probation kid and a dcfs kid a dcfs kid run faster so they're the same kids. They come from the same neighborhoods. They're doing the same thing. They just they got caught doing the same stuff with what others are doing. Meaning that oh, wow. we need to work with the and, and talking to the talking to that population, the older population. That'd be some sad. You may have to cuss a kid, but they probably don't want you to do that because that kid is not understanding your language. There's no cooker cutter language to a child and talking to a child. You cannot tell a child who don't understand the language. You can't say that behavior is inappropriate. I'm not going to tolerate this. If that child don't mm-hmm. understand it to get his attention, you may have to say, boy, don't do that shit no more. Put my foot in your ass. No, you're not going to do it. But he understands that. That's the psychological. He's understanding what you're saying. Once you get him to understand what you're saying, then you can get him to the point of that behavior is inappropriate. But until then, you're talking, you're talking English, but you're talking two different languages. So it's a matter of communicating. And also another thing, pushing, pushing, degrees to work with people. I know we go to school and all of that, but I've known some people who do not have degrees work much better with kids, work with people than people who have degrees. Because you have people who say, you have people who just not doing the right thing for a child. And I know some social workers who, who work on the front end here, they should be working with Microsoft or Word or something because they need to be working with a computer because their, their, their social skills and human skills are not good. But mm-hmm. the department bring them in just because of that degree. So degrees are not always the way to get to a child. Right. And I think, you know, if this if there's a huge takeaway from today's discussion is one, you know, we really need to talk about that cultural broker piece and really put a lot of emphasis into that because that's gonna be um, a very important asset in order to Um, increase better outcomes as far as when I talk about outcomes, I'm talking about supports to uh, uh, families and young people. But I also think, you know, what you all have shared so far is that we've made progress, but we still have some ways to go, right? And still at in the same time, we we need to um, look within ourselves to, to determine how we need to build and dismantle um, some of this infrastructure that impacts our families and youth, but also at the same time, you know, we, we still need to look at our, our solidarity as well as building our allyships. So normally when we close our woke moments, we, we close with my woke moment is, which could be a personal reflection or something that you would like to leave with the audience. And for me, my, my, my personal woke moment is, we still have a long way to go. So, um, Deborah, You know, when I saw you say, we need to talk about that personal woke moment, I just thought, gee, I was always woke. From the time I was in high school, I had an Afro and we had the Black Student Union. Yes. You know, it was back in the 70s and Black Power, we had the Panthers and different (laughs) organizations. So I said, we were always fighting. You know, I I pulled out my my high school uh, yearbook and it taught, 
and our alma mater talked about we were fighting for pride and dignity and live a life that's best for us in peace and eternity. And we would strive for rights and freedom in this land that we call home. That was part of my high school's alma mater. So wow. I've been woke, I've been woke for decades. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Ben Otho. Um well, I uh, my woke moment is being woke to the fact that there's more of us being woke because of a a groundswell. I, I've been woke more or less more conscious about who I am and, and where 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 we're in this universe around 2002 to 2003. And I I just I sit back and I'm like I'm happy that a, a lot more of us are woke. But but it 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 it, it takes us a, a, a sustained wokeness to move the needle. So that that's that's my woke moment. That like sharing what you said, the struggle continues. More webinars like this, and and more outreach. Because as far as I'm concerned, I'm more concerned about the person than the message. Because if you keep the person engaged, eventually they'll get the message. So all right. So those, those. Also, we closing with you. All right, all right. Uh, a, a person who who I am is a person who was born, bred, and educated in the state of Mississippi. I'm woke. Uh, I had to be woke. Uh, <laughs> and my segregation, my brother, the first six and a half years of my education was segregated. Even though 1971 is not that long ago, it was long ago, but that was the first time I even had a white teacher. So the first wow. education, the first uh, six and a half years was, but those were the best foundation of the education I think I could have because those people were woke and they wanted us to be awake. So I think that uh, man would be just uh, focus on our young people, get them, let's get them educated and put some things in their mind and, and uh, not let those media people who are in the entertainment business uh, raise our kids. That's right. Great. And thank you for those words. And I think we're going to close with that, Otho. And I want to thank our audience for joining us for part two of our Woke Moments on Foster Care Transformation. I hope that you walked away with some information that um, you found useful, as well as you will join um, our, our guests, as well as our communities with transforming our foster care system. Thank you so much and have a great one. Thank you for listening to Woke Moment. For more information about our organization, please visit SOH.org. Subscribe to us for a Woke Moment wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at the underscore SOH underscore LA and on Facebook and Instagram at Sanctuary of Hope LA.